0: Hello, folks. Welcome to the Symposium. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Josh. Hello. And we're going to talk about the evil side of welfareism. Now, this seems a bit paradoxical because welfareism is about well-being. But uh, I'm sure that uh, you will agree with me that uh, a lot of the times when governments in- introduce themselves into any kind of activity, they do it badly. And they turn good things into bad things.
1: Not only do they do it badly, but they make the situation worse than it was before, in a lot of cases, actually.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I think that this is a criticism that was seen as a doctrinaire, laissez-faire capitalist criticism in the height of the Cold War. And uh, people afterwards, they have opted for very different views, especially in academia. The libertarian view is very much of a niche. There are yeah, very few wrong. libertarians. Sorry.
1: Yeah, there are very few because, uh, you know, difficult truths are not always popular, right?
0: Yes, but uh, there is also there are also other aspects to it with respect to funding and uh, also the idea that the university is rapidly becoming an instrument for political propaganda, where students are not supposed to be educated into uh, being uh, critical thinkers and people who are learning how to think, but they are brainwashed with what to think. And instead of critical thinkers, they become the next generation of voters. But let us be a bit more meticulous in this, because I think that this is one of the interesting factors when people are defending um, classical liberalism, that uh, many people nowadays call libertarianism. A lot of the times you have to say things to people who argue against against it that have to do with that are big picture considerations and they are not very they are not immediately visible or intuitive to many people who are saying well there's a problem here it can't be solved privately therefore the state needs to intervene and a lot of the times liberal, classical liberals and libertarians they are saying that the more you introduce the state into, into solving things, the economy and the society, we are, as Hayek wrote it, on a slippery slope that leads to serfdom. We are on the road to serfdom.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, in many ways, we already are at that point, certainly in Britain, at least, where the state has expanded so much that um, about half of all the money that passes through the UK goes through the state. So basically halfway to full communism is uh, my perception of it. But there there are lots of aspects of, of looking at the role of the state that have really radically changed. And I think it's very strange that people do this. I think part of it is economic literacy, that they think that the state can create wealth. But of course, a state hoovers up other people's money, you know, in taxes, in Um, all sorts of things and then it redirects it somewhere else it's not creating money it's just taking it from one place and moving it elsewhere and more often than not because it's sort of no strings attached government money the area it's redirected to is not as efficient and I think efficiency is the key thing for things like economic growth it's not that you can take profits from one industry and just move them to the other because what people don't see is the the lost innovation that that money could have helped create and it could have been reinvested in the organisation scaled it up so the production is more efficient you know profits aren't just to be taken and spent elsewhere they have lots of uses outside of um simple pleasure i suppose And uh, the the same goes for people as well. You know, taxes take money from people who are seen as earning more than they need, and they give it to people who uh, can't pull their own weight. Um, Sometimes, you know, if if someone's got like a disability, I'm not going to be annoyed at them for it. But it's a very strange state of affairs where you have welfare, where someone has a good paying job, they lose their job for whatever reason, maybe no fault of their own, and then they go on welfare for a bit, and then they get someone's money that has been coerced out of them for free for failure. And it's a weird state of affairs where if you're working, you don't get any free money if you're actually contributing to society. But if you screw up or something just unfortunate happens to you, you get free stuff. And I think at a fundamental level, that is an unfair state of affairs because getting free things when you contribute less is not how it should work. I mean, even changing it to a system where you've got to repay the money the government gives you over time, even if it were like an interest free loan, that's a significant amount better than what we have now.
0: It seems to me that one good notion that uh, concerns what you said in the beginning is that of opportunity cost. And it has to do with all courses of action that were not taken for another action to be taken. And in this case, it seems to me that you are directly referring to it when you're saying that, for instance, the government steps in and does something with the wealth that it takes from other people to give it to others. And um, that's a missed opportunity cost because there could be better alternatives.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, if if they were looking at things, for, if they were trying to maximize, you know, economic growth or efficiency, which might not be, you know, particularly useful goals to have, um, because you know there are lots of other considerations as well. But if that was all they cared about. Well, actually, keeping money in the hands of people who might invest in successful companies um, rather than spend it on, I don't know, cigarettes and alcohol and betting shops and what have you. This is, this is probably an un- uncharitable view, but it's just an analogy for a greater point that people who already have money tend to spend their um, excess money, if you will, in ways where it goes back into the economy, because of course you want to get better returns than the rate of inflation, if you insist on having it in the first place. But I think it will always be the case that riskier investments give returns. And so leaving your money sat in a bank is always going to be the least optimal system, no matter what um, system you exist in, because risk gets better return.
0: Okay, I have an idea with respect to how to structure this discussion. I think in the beginning we need to start by introducing the non-economic problems of welfareism. Sure. Because a lot th- these arguments, I mean they here they seem fine to me, but they are unlikely to convince people who are not so much into economics, mm-hmm. especially in the political sphere. So sure. I think we should start by Focusing on the non-economic aspects. So uh, problems take of,
1: my economist's hat off and put my psychologist's one on.
0: Exactly. So focus on that by means of a discussion be, uh, that concerns the distinction between classical and modern liberalism. And this is directly relevant to the welfare state and a lot of the extreme aspects of welfareism. Mm-hmm. I think after that, we need to go to a bit more philosophical aspects of the issue of welfare and the theories of well-being and show exactly how they differ from between antiquity and and uh, contemporary times. And uh, towards the end, I want to have a small um, discussion about a qualified version of welfareism that I think isn't necessarily evil. And I want to hear what you have to say about it.
1: I haven't heard it yet, but I'm sure you're wrong. Okay. well, <laughs> welfare is evil. Anyway,
0: we'll, 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 we'll see about that. It I'm definitely has a negative side. And I think it is important to, to engage in this conversation because I think that right now we're at the time, it's also election year in the US. Uh, there's also going to be in, like, elections are soon going to take place in the UK.
1: I think at the very latest, it's January of 2025. Yes. So likely this year.
0: Yeah, it's a turbulent time. And not only in the US and the UK, there's also going to be elections in the EU Parliament. And there are also going to be elections, uh, not, not elections, but there are also many things that happen in the world that create fear. And there is a sense that the World order is crumbling, or at least the the Western um, international liberal order is crumbling, and this leads people into panicking. And many times there is panicking, both left and right. And wherever there is panic, people want to outsource what they th- the, the what is going to happen to the state. And I think we see this both. I mean, the left is always has always been like that. Well, it's essentially is, uh... state-oriented. But you also see on the right, there is an increase in, to the degree of state-friendly right-wingers.
1: Yes, and this is actually a psychological thing. It's um, an aspect of um, our nature whereby when there is a crisis or we're fearful, we defer to authority far more. And this has been tested in lots of robust experiments. And it also is sort of consistent with common sense. So you don't even need to take the literature's um, word for it. You can just think, well, in a crisis, people defer to a leader, don't they? I mean, you've got all of human history as evidence for that, don't you? And uh, I think that it's, it's a shame because in many ways, um, many of the, the crises that um, emerge, particularly in the modern day, are created by government, so to then give them more power is part of the reason why we're we're stuck in this sort of vortex of um, degeneration. Because you know, after two thousand and eight, the the government interfered, gave the banks that should have collapsed a bunch of money. You know, rather than reimbursing the citizens for the money that they lost because of the banks, which would have been cheaper, by the way. And so the banks realised that, hey, we don't actually need to behave responsibly because if enough of us fail at once, then the government will just bail us out. So it actually incentivized them to repeat their mistakes. And uh, thankfully it's not happened quite as uh, severely as it has, but there have been cases where um, banks have run into problems before. You had the uh, Silicon Valley Bank, didn't you? recently and then I can't remember whether it got bailed out or not it's quite a while ago now yeah but it's a a strange inclination I think and count uh, you know it's very counterintuitive to me knowing that you have this sort of nature to defer to authority but also that authority can quite often be the source of the problem and so it is misguided but at an individual level it's not misguided you know if you were um in with a group of people, you know, you're you're out hunting, you imagine you're a hunter-gatherer, you know, someone breaks their leg or something, having someone who is a, a leader to organize the group and come up with an effective strategy to help them, that makes perfect sense. But when we're dealing with the scale of a, a society, we apply the same principle, but it's not actually appropriate anymore it's sort of a, a misfiring of our instincts and that happens a lot in the modern world unfortunately
0: right so i think we need to draw the distinction between classical and modern liberalism mm-hmm. yet again because we have uh, we are known to have participated in some debates yes where the the other side collapsed them and it's very important to keep them distinct because they are distinct in very important ways and i think if i had to reduce the the difference in one thing, it would be the, the, the place of personal responsibility in each doctrine. I think that's massive. Of course, there are many more distinctions, but I think that this is the key one. The key factor has to do with how classical liberals view human beings as responsible individuals, for the most part, whereas in modern liberalism, there seems to be no such thing as personal responsibility for missed opportunities. So let us say this a bit more. Uh, Let us flesh this idea out. We could say that a lot of the time some people say, don't look past the slogans, and they just look upon the, the, the terms used by slogans. And the term equality has been used by a lot of uh, movements, a lot of political movements in the in history. But they didn't all mean the same thing. For instance, in the ancient times, equality was not equality of wealth. Equality was, for the most part, equality of social status. People were equals when they were sort of citizens or where they were uh, not slaves. It's a negative uh, term. It's uh, a non-slave, essentially. To be free, meant to be a non-slave. So if there was in the antiquity, sometimes, a conflation between freedom and equality, that was mostly it. Of course, it's much more complex, but that's mostly it. So what I want to say is that if we take this idea of equality, we need to ask ourselves yet again, equality of what? So classical liberals focused a lot on equality of rights and in the 20th century, there is a sort of flirting with the idea of equality of opportunity. But they never flirted with the idea of equality of results.
1: Yeah. Equity.
0: Equity. Yeah. They never flirted with that ideal. Now, modern liberals, to a very large extent, are, you could say, welfare state liberals and roles liberals of the 20th century and afterwards. And they say that they are not in favour of equality of results. In fact, Rawls in his theory of justice tries to say that you know communism isn't the best system. A sort of market socialism or a property owning democracy resembles the best system. But at the end of the day, if you look at the movement that has sprung from it, they have a very devious way of engaging in conceptual machinery. If you look at what they're doing, they're doing the following. They're saying, we don't want equality of results, that's Marxism. We want equality of opportunity. It seems as if they treat them as distinct notions, or non-related notions. But, what happens in practice, is that they treat equality of results as a criterion for equality of opportunity. So wherever you have unequal results, they rush to say that there was inequality of opportunity. And Rawls also had the idea that there is no such thing as desert for actions. If, oh, and that implies that you're not ultimately responsible for what you're doing. If it's only good luck or bad luck. That's yeah, anyone their that appeals
1: to it. luck has kind of gone awry. You abandon the concept of personal responsibility. Yeah. You open the door to being a monster, basically.
0: Well, at the end of the day, that's what he boils it down to. Oh well, uh, Yeah, I,
1: I hate roles. And yeah. a lot
0: of the people they, they who follow him, they do just that. And th- to be frank, lots of leftists did that before, before him. Mm-hmm. And Marxists do the same when they talk constantly about structure and structural uh, relations that affect people. So, it's good or bad luck what genes you're born with, it's good or bad luck the, or whether you're born in a good environment or not, and whether you act or not is entirely good or bad luck, as far as roles is concerned. There's no desert for
1: action. It's madness. Also, it's not good or bad luck that determines your genes, it's your parents. Uh, I mean, luck's not really that involved i know there's some variance about what genes you can inherit from your parents but you know you're not just getting magically these new genes just appearing other than you know mutation and things like that but i I, i'm making it sound like i'm disproving my own point here but but no there are lots of different ways in which a person can be responsible for their own actions and therefore deserve moral condemnation for them yeah Because, you know, even if their their genes and their environment still, you know, encode them to do something antisocial, most people are aware of what society views as good or not, and they make a choice to do it anyway. It's very rare that someone does something bad and isn't aware that they're doing something wrong. If it's particularly bad, I suppose, you know someone accidentally drops a few crumbs in someone else's house when yeah. they're eating a biscuit or something then you know it's not the worst thing in the world they didn't necessarily intend to do something wrong
0: i think uh, when with respect to the point you raise about the parents uh, Rolls would say something like it's uh, a natural lottery uh, you don't choose your parents anyway and uh, a lottery which is, is not which random is, anyway which is uh, i mean it, it is sort of what sorry
1: (laughs) a lottery is not entirely random anyway okay you know it's there's a set number of outcomes and i mean they're picked somewhat randomly but it's not perfect
0: yeah anyway so i think that essentially the main difference has to do with uh the place of personal responsibility in the two positions And there can be such a thing as personal responsibility for failure. In classical liberalism, modern liberals seem to be unable to understand the concept and to accommodate it within their view. And let me just say this back, because I was focusing on this a lot when I was dealing with uh, free will and personal responsibility. It's really important to see how whenever there is a reference to structure, There's an attempt to say that someone wasn't ultimately responsible for their bad behavior. And therefore, they shouldn't bear the cost of their bad behavior. Because ultimately, they were unlucky. And as far as they're concerned, it's 100% uh, bad luck. Now, the weird thing is, and the double standard is, that uh, they do this only for their supporters when it comes to those who support other positions, they are definitely responsible about a lot of things.
1: It's funny that, isn't it? Like, uh, you see it where the the mainstream media says, hey, Libs of TikTok is responsible for these bomb threats for uploading TikToks of what other people have posted to the internet. Just by, by exposing what other people have shared themselves, yeah. uh, she is responsible for threatening hospitals. Yeah. That's the the kind of standard they'll apply to their political enemies, but then when it's you know their friends, they're just like, oh well, you know, they may have embezzled all this money, but they had good intentions. You know, they they're in it for the people. They've they've not lost their cause. Yes, that's the kind of example of it. I couldn't think of an actual real world one off the top of my head. But <laughs> I think it was NBC that were doing that. I'm sure they've done all sorts of horrendous things like that, to be fair. though,
0: The other really important uh, distinction between classical and modern liberalism has to do with what is included into the area of activities that should be free from coercion and interference as far as liberals are concerned. And uh, classical liberals include a substantive and substantial amount of economic freedom in that sphere. That's why they focus on free markets, or freer markets, whereas modern liberals, they think that uh, property rights shouldn't be advocated as strongly, and they should only be embraced and adopted if they promote within quotation marks, socially just results. So to get it back into Rawls, Rawls has this principle of difference, and he says that inequalities are to be accepted if, comparatively speaking, the difference to the least well-off are better with inequalities, with particular structural inequalities, than they would be if those inequalities were absent.
1: Yeah, the the problem with that though, of course, is that why do those at the lower end of inequality deserve the private property of those at the top? And um, I'm certainly no defender of the people at the top of of, of modern society, but I see them as getting there um, through basically unfair means, right? So I, I would like to clarify that I'm not just a defender of the elites or anything like that because I think that a lot of them have used government and basically bribery to rig the game in their own favor and maintain their position. And when you look at some of the people who are incredibly wealthy, they're not especially intelligent or innovative. They've just um, been able to, you know, it's almost like they've selected for the most malevolent and Machiavellian in the, the sort of pejorative sense, you know, not to smear Machiavelli, you know, he's a political realist, he gets an unfair uh, judgment, but they, they, they're basically able to manipulate themselves into these positions because of um, their government backing, rather than fair shot in competition where, you know, the cream rises to the top, you know, it's meritocratic, and the best are the wealthiest, but you only need to look at the wealthy to know that that's not the case, and in fact... It's far from it.
0: I, th- I think you're right. And another major issue is how do you define the least well-off? Because Rawls essentially tries to argue for a redistributive mechanism that is governed by the state. And That was one of Nozick's uh, concerns with him, that this would violate freedom. But one of the, there is much more into it because whenever you're talking about redistribution that is governed by the state, You take from those who are rich and give to those who are the least well-off, in Rawlsian terms. But what is interesting nowadays is that there are lots of different understandings of who count as the least well-off. And I think we see this especially on debates on immigration. And let me say a bit more about this because I think it's very prevalent. There are people who can talk about redistribution on a national level. And they say that, for instance, we're going to take, they, they say the rich are the rich of this country, this geographical region that hosts a culture, and we take from them and give to those who are least well-off in that area and who partake in that culture. That's the national orientation of redistribution. What happens now with a lot of Rawlsians who represent, or at least some of them, definitely represent the Western, let's say, international uh, multicultural modern liberal order, is that they define the least well-off in global terms. That has a very interesting implication, that almost everyone in the West counts as rich. That is why They use this to justify taking from, let's say, almost everyone in the West and giving to others. And that's why they constantly talk about ending world poverty. Another interesting feature behind this is, behind the good intention, is that behind the claim, eat the rich, sometimes are the super rich. The super rich who don't pay taxes in a particular geographical region and they use this in order to completely destabilize a geographical region and basically tax others to oblivion, while using the government for tax evading, them, for for the uh, tax evading, and also for creating artificial barriers uh, to competition between themselves and local players.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I think that what they're doing there essentially uh, is impeding social mobility, aren't they? In the that- these sort of stateless elites, uh, you could call them, in that you know, they're, they're elites of no particular allegiance to one country, they're, they're sort of Davos types, right? Yeah. Um, they're able to use governments to um, impede the potential growth of businesses domestically that might be competitive on an international scale if they were given a fair shot. Um, and so they they and if any one country cracks down too much on them they just move so they're kind of like annoying mosquitoes only you know they're very fat with blood at the same time they're buzzing around you can't quite swat them and uh, if you get too close they'll move to another victim more or less
0: yeah so i think that if we bear these two differences between classical and modern liberalism in mind we see that The main, the overarching theme, it has to do with the role of the state in society. As far as classical liberals are concerned, the overwhelming agents of progress are individuals and civil society. The state is more there to ensure a kind of framework within which people are going to be able to pursue their own Mm -hmm. conception of the good life or in the U.S. terms, the pursuit of life, liberty, and, the, and happiness.
1: Yeah, and I think that that is an undeniable truth, in yes. that one need only look at why does technology create economic growth? What, what role does technology play in the economy? Well, technology, when it's implemented into an industry and it improves, say, production, what it's doing is making that production more efficient. And this is again hammering home that point of efficiency is the thing that creates growth and so how do you make things more efficient well, you don't just move things around do you that's not creating anything that's just redistributing which doesn't create anything it's in any in many ways it impedes things because it, it's taking resources that may have been reinvested um and so if you take this efficiency view, it makes perfect sense that people who um, are looking to make profit are better at generating wealth and, and creating a better world, if you will, than the state, which has no incentive to be efficient. And in fact, the incentive is the opposite way around, because the less efficient they are, the more they can claim money from other people and say, hey, we need this money. We can't do this thing. And that, of course, at a personal and individual level means that, well, not only do they have more funds to make their work easier, and you know, they can hire more people to do fewer things. They can also have more money on the sort of table for potential um, wage and salary increases.
0: Exactly. So we should always remind people, especially who are flirting with statism, that they may have a very inflated and idealistic idea of the state. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you pay close attention to the function of the mechanism, in very large cases, it is comprised of people and composed of people who have short political gains in, in mind. And they have every incentive to put, let's say, less than qualified people in several areas because they want more political support for themselves.
1: So incentive is the word I really want to underline and say this is very important. So efficiency is important to look at economic growth. Incentives is very important if you're looking at how individual um, actors, you know, individual people are going to behave within a system. So if you want to make a system grow and become better more productive you make it more efficient in various ways of doing so if you want to understand whether an organization works or not you have to have an understanding of the human beings and the incentive structures within their environment how does that determine their behavior and it just so happens that a uh, uh, behavioral decision making is my area of expertise and so I feel um, qualified to make those judgments I think and I think that a lot of the time, if the option is between, do you want to make more money or not? Most people will say yes. And especially if, you know, it's in, in the government scenario of, do you want to make more money and do less work simultaneously? Well, no wonder you get, you've get you had this institutional expansion post-World War Two in all Western countries because everyone's following their own incentives here to grow and grow and grow. But they're sort of parasitizing the private economy which is why despite the fact that it's a mathematical truth that the more things you have when they're growing the more rapid the growth is if you're looking at it from a production standpoint so if you were to look at a western economy and you know there was it was completely stateless if you will you know i'm not an anarchist by the way um but it was completely stateless the more resources you have, the easier it is to grow more resources more quickly. You'd have this exponential effect where growth rate keeps on increasing, but we don't have that, um, even though you know it's a mathematically true thing that the more you have, the easier it is to, to grow. We see it on an individual basis that the more money you have, the easier it is to sustain it. But when it applies to a government, what what is going on here? Well, it's that the government is retarding growth Um, by its choices. It's taking profits that would have otherwise started this snowball effect for itself and forever expanding. And because um, bureaucrats, people who micromanage things, don't actually create anything, and I think they actually create problems, that's their main output, um, it's not only um, staggering growth, it's having an, an actively... Um, stagnating and negative effect because, you know, they're, they're creating all of these rules and regulations that's making it harder and harder for these industries to be efficient and make profits and therefore grow more. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at